What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Michael Morrow is the CEO of Genesis Trading, a FINRA-registered broker-dealer providing liquidity for institutions in the crypto space. Previously, Michael worked at Second Market and Citibank. In this conversation, Michael and I covered crypto market infrastructure, how quickly Genesis has grown, what OTC trading is, and how institutional capital is entering the market. This conversation is full of interesting data points and information. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our sponsor, Block Estate a security token project in the $200 trillion industry of real estate. They've partnered with Polymath and Coinlist Comply API to create one of the first tokenized real estate funds, and they have a unique buyback and burn model. To learn more, visit blockestate.com. All right, guys, here with uh, with Michael from uh, Genesis Trading. Uh, how are you doing today? Not too bad. How are you? Awesome. Um, so we got a lot of cover today, but uh, before we kind of dive in, I think probably lots of people know about uh, Genesis and, and you know some of the stuff you guys do, but might not know as much about you personally. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could just start with kind of your background, and then we can get into how you uh, first discovered crypto. Sure. Um, so I am a reformed investment banker. Um, awesome. Right out of college, I did uh, seven and a half years at City in the uh, financial institutions group, sort of covering finance companies, um, banks, and, 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 and credit card companies. Um, and then I left City in 2008, um, and that's when I met Barry, um, mm-hmm. Barry Silbert, the, uh, the founder and CEO of Digital Currency Group, who was running a company called Second Market at the time. Um, and uh, this is right at kind of the onset of the financial crisis, and, and a lot of financial assets were becoming uh, more and more illiquid. Um, and so I joined up with him um, in the fall of 08 um, and started getting involved in the uh, sort of the e-liquid asset-backed securities and sort of the, the toxic assets that came about as a result of the financial crisis. Um, and then uh, one thing sort of led to another. Um, second market got involved in crypto in 20, late 2012 um, as sort of when we really started to study the space. And we opened up our trading desk in 2013. How did that all get started? That was all Barry. Um, Barry, I think, personally discovered Bitcoin in 2011, mm-hmm. spent about six months um, sort of being a, um, a non-believer to skeptic to believer to evangelist. He con- kind of completed that whole cycle in 2012, and then he wouldn't stop talking about it in the office. And so we said, all right, Barry, what's, what's Bitcoin? Let's kind of chat about it. Um, and at the time, um, we were making a market in all kinds of funky, e-liquid, esoteric, off-the-run financial assets. And... He said, you know what? Bitcoin's another one. Um, it trades like um, a lot of the other things we were trading at the time. And so we said, okay, let's let's do this. And this was March 2013. So March 2013, you guys kind of get the confidence, okay, let's jump in, start making a market uh, with Bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? Um, what was kind of at that time the concerns that people were voicing, even though you guys were going to do it? 
Uh, it's, a, it's a few things. One, um, we were starting from scratch. The one thing we did have was Barry's Rolodex. Mm-hmm. He had made a lot of contacts early on, um, so he knew really a lot of the early adopters. Um, what we really didn't have were the investors, was sort of the buy-side demand. So you had the guys that owned Bitcoin for like a dollar, right? Um, what you didn't have was kind of the traditional institutional capital um, ready to kind of step up and be the uh, the other side of the market. So one, kind of establishing um, a, a Rolodex ourselves of the buy side guys. Secondly, I think there was a lot of questions around money laundering, um, AML, KYC. Um, second market is a broker dealer. So we've always had, sort of had the SEC and FINRA um, overseeing all of our um, AML, KYC compliance. But Bitcoin is just another animal, right? Um, fixed income compliance is entirely different than sort of banking compliance. And so there was a lot we had to kind of get comfortable ourselves as well as our regulators to prove to them that we knew what we were doing. Um, and thirdly, I think a lot of the infrastructure that exists today um, simply obviously weren't there, right? Um even simple things like trying to like um, do uh, you know like the Bloomberg equivalent and having a trading terminal kind of getting up and going. Um, simple things like uh, you know how do we set up wallets? Um, you know the the Zappos and the Bitgos of the world that are sort of dominant today. Um, really, we're just kind of getting started back then, and so trying to figure out how to properly store your bitcoins, those types of things, things you'd never had to worry about in the securities world. Um, were, were big issues. And so I think those were some of the biggest things. Yeah, it, it's interesting because uh, as much as things have changed, they've kind of stayed the same, right? There's still conversation around, you know, compliance, anti-money laundering, you know, KYC. Mm-hmm. There's conversation around infrastructure for, you know, institutional type investors. And is it high quality enough? How do they use this stuff? Um, and, and so it, it feels like we just have moved kind of uh, you know, that conversation down the road and kind of up to the institutional level now. Um, but, but really what you're describing is it wasn't even there for retail, right, in 2013. We used to have um, individuals show up um, at our office um, with a suitcase full of cash wanting to buy Bitcoin. Wow. Um, that would provide no driver's license, no identification, but here's my proof of funds, and they'll open up their briefcase. Um, that world, obviously, um, that was 2013. Um, we don't have that issue anymore. Um, and so a lot of the issues that we're trying to tackle right now are actually much higher quality problems mm-hmm. than we were trying to solve back in 2013. Um, but, you know, and, and I would argue that we've come so far um, from, from where we are, but the market really expects um, how kind of the equities world works and how the commodities world works. And, but that took like decades of evolution for it to kind of get to today. Crypto, this has really can be mainstream for like a couple of years. And I'd argue that having futures products on the CME and the CBOE, that was unthinkable back then. And so I think about all the progress we've made rather than everything that's still missing. Absolutely. And, and walk me through, because that's an interesting anecdote, right? So people are showing up to the office with you know, suitcases of cash and, and just let me buy Bitcoin. What's their psychology or, or what's driving them to do that? They couldn't, there was no exchange infrastructure that's for them to use. They didn't trust the exchanges. Um, they're doing nefarious activity. Kind of, wh- why are they walking in with you know, cash trying to buy Bitcoin? Um, I would argue that it's probably a combination of both. So when we first started, there were really like two exchanges. You had Bitstamp that was still in Slovenia, and you had Mt. Gox out of Tokyo. 
And if you really wanted to buy a bunch of Bitcoin, you were wiring money to uh, a foreign country and just keeping your fingers crossed that the funds kind of get there, right? Um, and so here we were where we were, um, uh, we had an office. You could actually walk into our office and talk to us, which I think was a separate experience for a lot of people. Um, and I still think that um, there was certainly a level of, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say sort of like Silk Road level nefarious activity, but there were certainly lots of questions, if not red flags, certainly strong, strong yellow flags that, mm-hmm. should have been, that were raised. And, and frankly, um, we were sort of caught off guard um, sort of back then because we didn't really know what kind of reception this the market making stuff would actually take. Um, obviously, you know, we didn't end up onboarding any of these people that sort of walked in in person, but it certainly raised the, um, the, the compliance profile in the program as a result. Absolutely. Well, and, and it forces you to address it, right? So there's probably a bunch of questions you hadn't been asking that all of a sudden you started asking. And, and then two is uh, it probably accelerates the build out of your own infrastructure, right? Because you're like, hey, we need to get stop people from walking in the office with cash. Yeah, there's no question. I think crypto security is one thing. Um, physical security was quite another. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that certainly introduced a new dimension to the way we need to kind of think about our operations, certainly when we started doing the crypto things. Very cool. Um, okay, and, and so let's go from, this is like, you know, 13 or so uh, up through 14, 15, into maybe even 16. Mm-hmm. How does uh, Genesis kind of uh, evolve over time, right? So you guys start with just Bitcoin and, and pretty much just helping people buy Bitcoin, right? To uh, even today, you, you have a multitude of products, different assets, et cetera. Like, what, what does that evolution look like? So in the um, late summer, early fall of 2013, um, Grayscale, our sister asset management company, launched the Bitcoin Investment Trust. So early on in 2013, we were just helping to put investors into the trust by buying the underlying tokens. Um, and as you might imagine, the earliest investors were sort of the West Coast VC guys, yep. um, guys who understood the risk return profile of 1,000x or zero. Because frankly, that's what all of their VC investment return profiles kind of look like. And so um, they were kind of the first guys to ultimately kind of get in. Um, obviously, sort of you, you recall in 2013 kind of what happened to the price of Bitcoin um, kind of starting the early fall into to the end of the year. Um, and, you know, I think there was a lot more um, media attention and sort of press kind of started to sniff around the asset class when the price of Bitcoin went from like $90 to whatever, $1,200, $1,300 that we kind of saw in, in December. Early 2014 um, was the Mt. Cox event. And I remember being in the office. Um, we had like an emergency meeting one Saturday. And we were trying to think through, okay, um, Mt. Gox just sort of announced um, their hack and, and, and all of that. And what are we going to do? What's going to happen to the price of Bitcoin? Um, and I think all of us were like, I think this might go back to the $50, $60 price of Bitcoin kind of before the, the crazy run. Um, and we were trying to think through strategy. What can we do to kind of get out in front of this, et cetera? Um, and then, you know, it didn't happen. Um, we didn't see the price kind of dip back down to the to the fifty dollar level, uh, but you know, 2014, 2015, there were lean times. Um, the institutional interests, I think, that had kind of started to look into it, just entirely kind of got on the sidelines, and I really couldn't blame them, right? Like, you had the biggest exchange. You know, was it hacked? Was it an outside job? Was it an inside job? Um, how much of it was manipulated, um, all that kinds of things. And I think it threw a lot of those into kind of question. Um, 
And so, you know, even into early 2015, you sort of saw the price of Bitcoin kind of hovering around the $200 kind of level. Um, and the lack of volatility, um, Bitcoin became a lot less exciting, right? It came kind of boring for, for a lot of folks. And, um, you know, I think for a time, um, a lot of the momentum that you kind of saw in, in, the, in the fall and in winter of 2013, I think, certainly dissipated by the time early 2015 kind of came around. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's interesting because, you know, obviously earlier this year, uh, 2018, we saw this big drawdown in the market, right? And, and uh, you know, I, I think that there's two camps. Some people say, hey, we're going to, you know, could fall further or we're going to stay kind of sideways for a while. Some people think that it's going to race back by the end of the year. Um, it sounds like during that last bear market, while the drawdown wasn't as long as you expected, uh, it was quite, um, you know, from a timeline perspective, it, it did persist for a while Mm -hmm. right and do you think that there's an element of it persisted for that long because people had to forget about kind of the parabolic run and and the uh you know following drawdown or do you think it was more kind of technically driven around you know infrastructure getting built and hash rate and things like that i think it's it's probably a combination of both i think um when you look back to the 2014 2015 years um Obviously, um, lots of questions around how you could even do a fundamental analysis of Bitcoin, right? Um, There's no book value. There's no earnings. How do you kind of get your arms around it? I think one of the things that people kind of look to is um, where is the infrastructure? Um, And certainly, you know, um, while it's kind of hard to – it's probably really difficult to justify a $1,000 Bitcoin price in 2013. Um, given the lack of wallets and, mm-hmm. and lack of any like trading platform, um, banking support was kind of here nor there. Lots of questions about money laundering, all those types of things. I think, and the price of Bitcoin kind of clearly kind of ran ahead of itself. Um, but I think what it kind of forced the crypto space to do was kind of retrench a little bit and actually really just build um, and really forget about sort of the overnight get-rich-quick type of mentality um, that I think a lot of the investors may have had in even 2013, which obviously kind of repeated itself in 2017, but I'm sure we'll kind of get to that later. Um, but I think it really kind of focused the industry to say, okay, there's potential here, um, so let's build a product, let's build the services, and let's kind of elevate this thing from Bitcoin 1.0 to kind of the next level and see where this takes us. Uh, so I think those couple of years were absolutely necessary because the price stopped being a distraction. Yep, and it just really focused, um, got your mind to sort of focus on building the business. Absolutely, and, and so this really takes us into like fifteen and into sixteen, right? And it goes from a Bitcoin only world to you know Ethereum and kind of all of these altcoins, ICOs, etc. From where you guys are sitting at that point, having been so early in kind of you know building infrastructure for Bitcoin. What does that look like? What are you guys talking about at the time? What are the concerns? Or are you excited about kind of these alternative assets popping up uh, in the space? Um, I think we've always imagined a world in which multiple um, tokens would certainly exist. I don't really think that um, anyone kind of thought that Bitcoin was kind of the one and only. Um, And I think when when Ether sort of came around, I think initially um, we had a difficult time to just kind of get our head around what it was kind of meant to do. Because I think from a design uh, specs perspective, it was just so different than Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin's very narrow in kind of what it's kind of meant to do, whereas Ethereum was exactly the opposite. It was so wide in terms of possible applications and kind of uses via the, the smart contracts. And I think... Um, and obviously, the way that Ether kind of came about and its kind of funding mechanism was certainly interesting. 
um, and sort of the, the first ever ICO, right, um, being kind of purchased just for Bitcoin. And I think um, that certainly opened up its, um, our minds, certainly as kind of the possibility is what's, what's possible in a truly kind of crypto world. And I think all of the ICOs that have sort of come upon um, afterwards and kind of in the aftermath of the Ether stuff, um, are certainly exciting. I think there's fantastic projects. I think there's um, um, a ton of potential um, for, for some of this stuff. Um, on the other hand, I do think that, um, you know, um, that market clearly got overheated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the ICO market, um, there was a truly kind of a disconnect between traditional VC guys um, who said to me personally that like th- these projects have a hard t- would have a hard time raising a million dollars of traditional VC funding, and they're raising thirty, forty, fifty million dollars in two days. Right? There's certainly a disconnect there, or whether or not VCs are really that bad and they're just way too strict in kind of what they're valuing, or um, there's a lot of um, quote unquote dumb money kind of being thrown at these projects. And so um, we stood on the sidelines just trying to figure out what really is happening because there was a ton of noise, um, mm-hmm. certainly last year. Absolutely. And, and so uh, that brings me, you know, let's go 16 into 17 mm-hmm. and even till today in 18. What does the business look like today and kind of, you know, what do you offer to uh, clients across, kind of, you know, your different lines of business? So, well, let's, let's touch on uh, Genesis Trading to kind of start with. Um, from an infrastructure perspective, um, we're now market making eight or nine different tokens. Um, and our decision to sort of add tokens are entirely based on investor demand. Um, so we're institutions only. Um, Our average trade size is somewhere between half a million to a million dollars right now. Um, And so unlike kind of the exchanges that do thousands and thousands of transactions, um, we're much more kind of smaller in terms of trades per day. Um, But we're, you know, doing anywhere from call it half a billion to like two billion dollars a month um, in terms of total OTC volume. Um, It's still mostly Bitcoin. Um, I would probably say 75 percent of our volume is kind of Bitcoin right now. Um, uh, number two kind of varies kind of, um, month to month, um, XRP, huge January, as you might possibly imagine. Um, so they kind of occupy the number two spot, um, but it kind of switches. Um, but most months is probably still, still ether is probably, probably guess. Um, but we offer, um, just a two-sided market. Um, and, uh, we just recently hired an overnight trader to kind of cover Asia hours. Um, so we have a guy that's sort of doing that at two, three, four in the morning, mm-hmm. um, which sort of introduced sort of a new market for us. Um, so I think that's been, um, a really sort of interesting kind of addition to our service. Um, and then in February, um, we launched Genesis Capital, which is our lending business. Um, we've had sort of small pockets of demand for, for crypto borrow over the years and, um, we've always kind of run it out of our broker-dealer, um, taking some of the Bitcoins and Ether that we owned on our balance sheet and kind of lending them out. Um, we realized that this was a true kind of opportunity um, because, one, I think it's really important for the market growth um, to have a two-sided price discovery possible. In a long-only market, I just didn't see this um, sort of the institutional money being able to kind of come in if the only thing you can do is just buy. Um, And then we also said, hey, you know, um, it's a fantastic sort of hedging tool for investors. 
Um, they may own crypto elsewhere that want to take a short position and kind of hedge their exposure at one point without selling their initial purchases. Two, I think the, um, the growth in the futures market um, has sort of seen futures market makers come to Genesis Capital to get a borrow on the spot market. Because as they're taking action on the future side, they're able to hedge instantly on the spot market via a borrow. And then we've had guys who just wanted to outright short it that had no long position um, that were happy to sort of take a, uh, a calculated naked short bet um, that either this thing is zero or close to zero and that over time this thing will actually play itself out. Um, we launched the business with about $20 million in loans. In February, and I think right now we're about $125 million or so um, in sort of our overall loan portfolio. And I think we've originated about a quarter billion of loans so far. Um, so demand is there. Um, and uh, the fantastic part about it is that we're really only lending to the best of the best. Um, again, we're not facing individuals. These are all hedge funds and sort of institutional accounts. We're doing the credit work. Um, plus, they're posting U.S. dollar collateral. Um, against kind of loan positions we're making. So um, it's been a fantastic sort of new service addition for us. And it allows both sides, bulls and bears, to actually put on a position um, in the uh, in the spot market. Absolutely. No, it, it's fascinating, too, to go from, you know, $20 million to about 125 today, got the $250 million or so in kind of total loans. Is this all in Bitcoin, Bitcoin and Ether? What's the kind of disparity look like, uh, given what you see on the uh, on the OTC side? Right? Is it, it similar? Um, it's it's interesting. Um, we get fantastic kind of market color. Um, so we've seen in 2018 so far sort of price resistance in Bitcoin in the high fives, somewhere around the 5,800 level. Um, so we've had guys who initiated short positions kind of in the 7,000 area. Um, and then for, you know, because they feel some level of resistance on the price, close out their shorts somewhere around the 6,000, 5,900 number. We've had guys kind of do a rinse and repeat, have the price kind of come up to the 7,000, initiate the short right back down, but that's why they close. And so um, when folks kind of talk about, hey, I think we've seen the, the lows of the year kind of come in, it's actually playing out that way in the loan market because no one keeps their loans outstanding for very long once we kind of hit the high fives. Um, Ether, there really isn't a bottom. Um, I don't have that sentiment for Ether. Um, and that's just kind of the way data is kind of playing itself out. Um, we don't have guys that try to play the, you know, I think there's resistance around the, you know, the 275 level. And so they'll short their way down from 300 down to 275. Um, I think there's plenty of people that will kind of keep their loans outstanding on the Ethereum for, for a lot longer than that. And that's actually playing out on the, um, on the OTC side too. Last two weeks, prior to this run right now into the mid-7,000s, we couldn't find a Bitcoin seller in the uh, low 6,000s. Um, we've had some buyers, but very, very few sellers. There was no shortage of Ethereum sellers. None. Wow. Um, we could have sourced a ton of Ethereum if there was buy-side demand enough to kind of get that done, right? So um, people talk about price decoupling um, and, and Bitcoin and Ether, which kind of traded on path with each other for, for quite some time. I think we've already kind of started to see that. Yeah, that's, that's super fascinating. Uh, and then, so if you started the business in February, this is kind of initial drawdown had already been uh, initiated, mm -hmm. right? Um, how much of the shorting that happened maybe December, January timeframe 
was volume that you saw and that drove the decision to, to get into uh, the lending side or you were already kind of planning on doing that and then it, you know the timing just worked given you know the market conditions I wish I was uh, smart enough to kind of predict it um, in, in, in December and January that this is the way it would play out but we really just made the decision about um, over a year ago now so this is an early 2016 where we said, 2017 rather, where we decided to uh, launch Genesis Capital. It's an idea that we've been kicking around kind of internally and said, hey, one day is going to be kind of the right time to do it. Um, and uh, myself and the board kind of decided that um, early 2017 was kind of the year in which we're going to try this. And it obviously took, you know, six or nine months to kind of hire some folks and kind of build the infrastructure and kind of plan the launch of the business. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that February just happened to be when we were ready to go. That's awesome. Um, okay. So, uh, obviously you guys are, you know, very well versed in, uh, kind of liquid cryptos, like cryptocurrencies, um, and, and really kind of participate in maybe the top 10 or so kind of liquid cryptos. Um, one of the things that a lot of people have been talking about is tokenized securities, mm -hmm. right? And so kind of these, uh, these tokens that are backed by um, stocks, bonds, you know, currency or uh, commodities, et cetera. Um, and, and so one of the show sponsors is a uh, uh, block estate, right? So blockestate.com. Uh, and they've basically created this equity token for real estate, mm -hmm. right? And, and so uh, before the show, we were talking that you just bought a home, yes. right? <laughs> and, and, and so the thought process would be rather than you signing all the paperwork, et cetera, you, you could actually own a token that represented ownership in your home, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How do you guys look at, you know, these equity tokens or, or these um, asset-backed tokens uh, in light of your business and then the overall ecosystem? I think um, one of the things that we are still trying to kind of figure out is if these are technically securities, and if they are, um, then they would be obviously under sort of SEC, FINRA, oversight, and kind of purview. Um, and I think there's a lot of questions and guys that kind of needs to be put out um, by both regulators about how we should think about trading these assets. Um, how, who's going to be the custodian of these assets, right? Um, the, the traditional crypto guys um, are, not pro are not qualified to be securities custodians. Um, but so that's when, you know, Northern Trust is building something. It's possible that um, Goldman Sachs is going to build something. There's kind of been rumors in the press about both of these guys. And um, it's kind of the getting the traditional securities custodians in place, I think, is a key, key determinant of how it happened. Now, personally, on the tokenized real estate front, yes, I did just buy a house last week. Um, it was a painful process in terms of the closing. Um, it took about an hour and a half of just signing my life away. Um, could this entire process have been a lot more seamless by having real estate on the blockchain? 100%. Um, and the deed just kind of is on the blockchain. It's sort of provable. And when it's time to sell the house, I just transfer the deed assets over to another address. I think there's a lot of um, efficiencies that can come about. Um, but I think it really kind of depends on where the regulators kind of sit on this. Absolutely. And it, it, it's interesting, too, because if all of a sudden you get these asset-backed tokens, right, when it, whether it's OTC trading, lending, et cetera, it opens up a world of possibility, right? Because mm -hmm. today you're basically doing this with, you know, Bitcoin, for example, a digital currency, right? But imagine if you could do it with every asset class, mm -hmm. right? And, and so, so it's, it's fascinating to think about. And, uh, you know, for those that want to learn more about uh, Block Estate, they can go to blockestate.com. Um, but, okay, so let's talk about the broader ecosystem for a second, right? Um, what is the part of crypto that you find most fascinating or interesting that most people don't talk about? 
I think one of the things that um, I try to find um, really, really kind of interesting is how everyone, and I don't blame them for doing this, but I think everyone is trying to fit Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto into an existing bucket um, in terms of the way they kind of analyze um, prices, infrastructure, fundamentals, that type of stuff. And, and I think we're really still trying to get our arms around how do you value this stuff? Um, and while there's plenty of kind of theories and kind of valuation thought pieces kind of around the asset class, I still think the, the equity research equivalent of crypto is still sort of a work in progress. Um, I am sure over time um, there will be sort of inv investment banks that dedicate entire equity research coverage teams to, to this space and try to come up with an industry consensus for how we kind of think about this stuff. Um, but, you know, that's, that's still up in the air. Um, and lots of competing thoughts about how to kind of do this. Uh, and, but my hope is at some point the industry can come together and come up with a DCF or a market comparables or any of those types of things to kind of think about the right way to think about it. Then it's easier to kind of get your head around like price targets, um, whether they actually mean anything or not. But I do think that traditional investors will look to equity research, um, equivalent sort of in the crypto space um, as they kind of make their investment decisions. Yeah, and, and a lot of it is, I think, when there's got to be some level of uh, standardization, right, when it comes to, hey, these are the things that we're actually going to look at from a data perspective. And then two is the way that everyone interprets that, interprets that data. Right. So you and I may look at, you know, for example, uh, a revenue multiple in the public markets, and we may think that the company is actually worth different things. Mm -hmm. But at least we agree that that is one of the data points that are important to valuing a company. I, right? th I think that's right. I think um, and, and there's certainly plenty of um, controversy around just data generally and the integrity of the data. Um, you know, while I have no doubt that like 2017, 2018 blockchain data and Bitcoin, people can kind of come to a consensus around what the right data is. Go back to 2012. Good luck trying to get actual real data um, on Bitcoin back then, or even trying to figure out the hash rates of Litecoin from just a couple of years ago. Those data is really kind of hard to come by. Um, and while I do think there's kind of promising data projects, I think there's still a lot of work to be done on the data curation side before we even get to trying to figure out the right methods of valuation that the industry can kind of rally around. Absolutely. I mean, look, one of the things that happened, I think it was uh, either end of last year or beginning of this year, that just really didn't get that much attention was when coin market cap switched up some of the data sources it was pulling in and all of a sudden it wiped like a hundred billion dollars of market cap. Right. And that was one of the kind of higher quality reference data sources. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that immediately pulls into question, what is the quality of the data that they're using and then the data that they're presenting to people. And so I think that that's just one website, right? You across exchanges, data providers, et cetera, this is a huge issue. And, and again, I don't know if we're really going to get to a solution, right, in the short term. But I do think that um, getting to a point where there's audits or, or validation of data and kind of consistency and accuracy is essential to get these institutional investors in. I think that's right. And, and this is like the unsexy stuff, right? This is the back office accounting finance operations work. Um, but that's really kind of what's necessary to kind of move the you know, spot forward. And, and frankly, um, there really shouldn't be like as of, let's say, midnight at uh, 1231, what was the price of Bitcoin? 
mm-hmm. right? And I guarantee you the, uh, the, the people in this room will come up with different prices because you'll reference different exchanges or different indices, um, and we really haven't re- agreed upon kind of the standard. Now, there are folks that's trying to kind of raise their hand and kind of become that. Um, certainly, the efforts that the CME has done, for instance, around the Bitcoin reference rate as they price their futures, um, the CBOE obviously has something kind of similar, is a way to kind of get there. Um, but I do think that um, industry consensus, I think, is yet to be seen. Absolutely. So actually, let's dive in a little bit how you guys use data on the OTC side. So first of all, um, there's probably plenty of people who are listening who actually don't even understand what OTC trading is. So maybe kind of give you know, quick two-minute overview of what is OTC trading, then we talk about how you guys use the data. Sure. So OTC trading um, is all post-trade settlement. So and as opposed to exchanges where you pre-fund the exchanges with either fiat dollars or Bitcoin or Ether or Litecoin, whatever it is, um, we actually agree to a transaction first. Um, this is the way old Wall Street sort of works in that you agree to the transaction first. Um, old Wall Street also trades and um, on, does settlements T plus two. So trade date plus two days. Um, so on the third day is when you actually settle the transaction. Um, in crypto, things move a lot faster. And so we're much more sort of same day settled. So we're much more like T plus an hour or two hours kind of opposed to settlement. But we agree in the trade. At the time we agree on the trade, that trade is actually agreed. So regardless of what happens to the price, up or down, um, we honor the trade and we expect all of our counterparties to do the same. If you're, we're selling you Bitcoin, we give your bank wiring instructions, you send the bank wire, um, a bank money to us, and then we just send you the Bitcoins to your address and sort of vice versa. It's a very simple kind of straightforward process, but it's much easier than trying to wait for the wire to, to, um, to hit um, any of the exchanges before you put on the trade. And, and part of this is, uh, so the way that it works in practice, right, is I can call you, I can message you, you know, whatever way I, I choose to communicate. And I talk to somebody who works at Genesis mm-hmm. and we come to an agreement. Mm-hmm. I literally say, hey, I want to buy, you know, five Bitcoin. And somebody on the other side says, okay, we'll sell you five Bitcoin at X price, right? Once we actually agree, that is where the trade is final in terms of, uh, you know, price, amount, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then the settlement is actually what you just described in terms of the the transaction of fiat or, or crypto uh, trading hands. Correct. The right? exchange is the settlement portion, um, but that comes after we agree upon the transaction. Yep. And, and the reason why somebody does this, right, one is either they want to uh, get lower fees, right, mm-hmm. than going on an exchange with kind of a large transaction. Two is they want to guarantee that there is some liquidity there, mm-hmm. right, and, and kind of consummate the trade uh, much faster. Uh are there other reasons why somebody's doing that, or are those the two main ones? I think the um, certainly um, the two that you mentioned, exchange slippage, is certainly one thing. Um, and we're much tighter probably on a spread on a $5 million transaction, say, than, than some of the exchanges. Um, the other thing that fe- pokes, um, folks like to face Genesis is kind of our highly regulated status. For the institutional guys, and they're, um, they have um, limited partner investors who rely on the general partner, they don't want any questions as to where do these Bitcoins come from? How mm-hmm. do I know that a Silk Road guy didn't own these Bitcoins three hops ago? So they trust the RAML KYC compliance process to kind of know that these Bitcoins, um, were, that we're vouching for them. Um, and that the questions around, hey, where did you get these Bitcoins from, from your auditor or your compliance department? Oh, we got these from a broker dealer. It, it kind of ends the conversation kind of at that point. And so um, provenance of Bitcoins and kind of the crypto is, is certainly 
certainly one of the value add of sort of facing an OTC desk. Makes sense. Um, Okay. And and so obviously if I'm somebody who wants to purchase uh, via OTC and I call you guys up, how do you determine the price? Right. So, so we're talking, you know, we talked a little bit about kind of the quality of data that's out there. Are you guys going to one exchange kind of taking a, a, um, you know, average of a couple of exchanges? How do you actually use that data to, to kind of get confidence around this is the price that, w- that we're comfortable trading at? So our early technology partner is a company called TradeBlock. Um, and TradeBlock kind of uh, helps power our trading platform at Genesis. Um, and they have um, an index called the XBX, which takes into account a volume-weighted average price across some of the biggest U.S. dollar exchanges. And so our quotes are based off the XBX. We don't try to rely on sort of any single exchange. Yep. Um, because as you might imagine, you know, this is kind of less the case now, but a year ago, two years ago, certainly prices varied greatly kind of across exchanges. If you only looked at kind of one exchange for, for, for market color, um, you would have been off um, kind of what market was. Um, and so the I think the advent of a lot more sort of market makers and some of the high frequency guys kind of going to get involved have sort of removed exchange ARB opportunities. And so prices are trading way more uniform across exchanges than they were in the past. Um, but we do rely on an index um, from, from trade block as far as how we think about kind of our quoting. Got it. Yeah, and, and the exchange arm was huge, you know, even as, as early as uh, or as late as last year, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I mean, there's people who are literally setting that up as their trading strategy. That's 100% correct. Um, but uh, like I said, I think all of that is is, is gone by now. Got it. Um, okay, and, and so uh, as we look forward, right, what do you think are the areas that people are not building in that are going to be either uh, important or um, are, are going to become kind of the focal point um, a, as we, you know, kind of go into uh, early 19 and maybe even to 2020? Ultimately, I think there are questions around um, uh, the exchange infrastructure and how that kind of ultimately develops over time. Um, today, you have um, in the traditional markets, you have sort of the NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, which is the pure matching engine, but they actually don't hold any equities or any money. They're just matching buyers and sellers, right? And then you have um, the DTC that the kind of does the settlement aspect of it. Um, and then there's a separate custodian, right? The state streets and the, the, the BNY melons that are actually holding the, the security. So you actually have three different parties um, in the traditional world, whereas all three happens by the same company in crypto today. You fund Coinbase. They hold your coins. They hold your fiat. And they're also the matching engine, and they're also the settlement agent. So you basically have pockets of funds kind of globally kind of scattered. Um, Is that really the way that this space ultimately kind of evolves? Uh, It's possible. Or um, will the uh, New York Stock Exchange kind of model, will a DTC get created at some point to kind of help settle transactions? Because I think one of the things in the OTC space is somebody still has to act first. There isn't this concept of simultaneous settlement and, and DVP delivery versus payment that you see in this world. And traditional investors really aren't um, interested, obviously, in kind of taking that counterparty risk, right? What if I send the money and you don't send me the Bitcoins? Then what happens to me? Um, and while that's why you work with um, reputable counterparties on the OTC side, I think a lot of that concern can be alleviated if you actually created sort of a DTC for crypto. But that has to be so trustworthy, so well-funded, um, and it's possible, um, but I think it, it'll take a lot of effort to kind of get there. Can that only get built by a traditional financial like incumbent? 
Um, if you recall, I think the DTC was initially funded by the big banks, right? And so um, certainly getting industry participants to kind of help fund a group um, effort um, certainly goes a long way because you have immediate buy-in. Um, from the incumbent participants to serve a DTC. Is it possible that the existing crypto guys can put funds together? Certainly. But if we're really targeting the, the biggest hedge funds and family offices in the world, um, I'm a little bit skeptical that they trust an effort put together by a bunch of startups. Just, I just think they want to see um, some traditional money kind of backing it to really give them the comfort level um, that uh, everything's on the up and up. Yeah, uh, look, it's something that we talk all the time, right? It's uh, to an extent, um, Wall Street is the best thing that could happen to crypto, and on the other, on the flip side, it's the worst thing that could happen to crypto, right? In terms of uh, Caitlin Long came on and she was talking about you know kind of the rehypothecation of Bitcoin and and, and you know really attacking the core value prop of, of this scarce asset. Uh, Wall Street doesn't really like scarce assets, right? And, and so I think that it's a, you know a double edged sword there. I think that's probably right, um, but I think. Uh, you know, I would argue most, if not everyone, wants to see the price of Bitcoin going up to 100K, half a million, a million dollars. And I'm strongly of the belief that this doesn't happen without Wall Street involvement. Mm-hmm. No, it ma- makes sense. Um, okay. And something you said earlier was uh, at Genesis, you guys just brought on kind of the first overnight trader, right? And so obviously you're doing that to uh, address or serve this global community, right? In the customers that you guys have coming to you, either on the OTC side or on the lending side, talk about kind of the uh, the demographics, right? These are uh, obviously kind of higher quality, either borrowers or, or uh, participants, but mostly domestic focused, internationally, even what, what does that really look like? Um, I would say that today we're still about 75% domestic here in the U.S., Um, But it's our international counterparties that are growing the fastest. Um, So over time, I do expect the ratio to get closer to 50-50, if not flip upside down entirely. Um, But like I said, I think a lot of the the Asia flow um, and kind of the conversations that sort of happen, we're just kind of scratching the first surface. Um, And so I think that's an exciting kind of growth opportunity for us. The one thing we haven't done is open up foreign offices. Um, uh, We've decided to go 24-7 out of New York for now. What we're really kind of realizing um, is that a lot of the liquidity is sort of isolated in separate countries, especially in Asia. Like there's a Tokyo market, a separate Hong Kong market, there's a separate market in South Korea, a separate market in a bunch of different countries, and there's really kind of isn't fantastic kind of overlap across the countries. And so you have really siloed pockets of liquidity and trying to figure out which country to set up an office um, and figure out what the laws and regulations, um, as well as just hiring um, kind of the upstart costs, we really couldn't justify that, right? So what we're doing for now is trying to figure out um, where the liquidity is, where the interest is, um, and gather the data ourselves out of New York, and then we're in a much better position to kind of decide what to do um, once we figure out what the right, um, you know, right, right market for that is. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, everyone's trading on an email or via screen. They don't really care where the traders are sitting, right? Um, and so um, we really haven't had pushback as far as from folks to say, hey, you don't actually physically have a trader in Tokyo. That doesn't really seem to matter. Absolutely. It's funny that you talk about uh, trading over email or or screens. Uh, Obviously, on Wall Street, that's not how it's done, right? And and, uh, somebody said to me the other day that Skype, 
right, mm-hmm. is like the OTC backbone of the entire crypto industry because there's so much done via messaging and, and video, et cetera. Um, and, and so it's just fascinating. You know, the infrastructure is not to the level yet of Wall Street, but given that we're, you know, 10 years less into this, it's actually quite bit of infrastructure that's been built and, and kind of um, sits here today to allow you to, you know, operate on a global scale, all from New York City, right, w- with uh, a number of different assets and both on the OTC and the lending side. What I think is also interesting, I think, is that, like, you have to remember, like, a- as, as a broker-dealer, we've been doing traditional securities for years before we got involved in crypto. And we know how um, everyone, all the traders on Wall Street use the Bloomberg chat function. Right. And so a plenty of trades get agreed upon in Bloomberg chat. Then you just cut tickets on Bloomberg um, to sort of make it formal. But a lot of the negotiation, kind of the back and forth still happen over chat. It's just that in crypto, we don't have sort of the, um, the active community on Bloomberg yet. I bet that's coming. Um, and really, like whoever controls the chat really controls the audience. Right. And so um, we kid around from time to time that somebody like Skype should just open up a crypto trading platform and you already own the conversation. Um, and I do think that's a large part of actually who gets the transactions. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, all right. So l- let's talk about a couple of the controversial things that are going on in crypto right now and, and kind of from your seat, what you guys think. So Tether, huge uh, kind of, you know, back and forth as to whether they actually are backed one to one to the U.S. dollar or not. Kind of what is your guys um, take or, or even you personally in terms of how you see that playing out and, and any concerns there? Um, obviously, um, I think that uh, the industry as a whole has a lot of vested interest in making sure Tether has is fully kind of collateralized on the U.S. dollar. And I don't really, I don't have a view one way or the other um, if it is or not. Um, but it has certainly spawned um, a whole host of other kind of stable coins and kind of currencies out there that I think um, Tether was first to market. And I don't know whether other guys would have really jumped in. Um, if Tether could have been way more kind of transparent about their books and records, I think that would have been that might have been like a closed door to a lot of these companies. But questions and skepticism kind of around Tether gave the opportunity for a lot of these guys to kind of launch their own thing. Um, I certainly think it's interesting, um, but I've always said to my traders, I don't want you guys trading 35 stable coins. Right. Um, There needs to be more of an industry consensus around one, two tokens maximum. Mm -hmm. And as these projects kind of come on board and come online and actually start trading, I'm sure it'll be like a market test. Whoever's strong enough and has the most liquidity will end up winning and kind of play itself out. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting things about the traditional asset back model um, versus some of the algorithmic models um, that's kind of out there and, and kind of made them best, best one win. But ultimately, it's all about confidence. Um, and... Um, whether or not the market really believes in the product that you're selling. Um, but that's no different than like crypto and, and, and people kind of buying into the vision, white paper, what it's ultimately trying to do. I don't think it's any different on the stablecoin side. Absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. Um, obviously, some of the people who are transacting in Tether specifically are the retail right, investors who are trying to go in and out of crypto or, or kind of transact with, with some level of, of, uh, of safety in terms of, of that value. Um, one of the things that I think people are really pushing for is the participation of retail investors into um, just investing in general, right? So we saw this with the ICO boom where all these non-accredited investors could start to uh, participate. Remains to be seen kind of how regulators will come down in terms of was that stuff compliant or not. Um, but 
recently the SEC chairman said, you know, they're looking at ways to get the non-accredited investors into more private type opportunities in a compliant way, but still provide the investor protections, right? Mm -hmm. You guys are obviously dealing with much more institutional type investors. Is it a thing where if there was the regulatory compliance and protections available, you think that you'd be able to kind of go down funnel and, and start to um, you know interface with more of those retail type uh, investors, or is it something where just from a ticket size, et cetera, it, it's kind of you know preventing you from going down? Uh, it's it's certainly much more the latter. Um, we're just not set up from a systems operational infrastructure to be onboarding like thousands and thousands of counterparties. Um, we're much more sort of high touch white glove service, and, and it'll be really difficult for Genesis, I think, to offer the same high-quality customer service if we had, like, 100,000 users kind of calling in mm -hmm. kind of at the same time to be able to speak to a Genesis representative. Um, and so it, it's much less about, um, you know, the accredited investor kind of definition around, like, suitability, for instance, um, than it is much more about, hey, um, that's a market that the exchanges service very, very well. Um, but uh, it's kind of the, 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 the bigger ticket guys are the ones where it's worth it from a customer acquisition cost perspective to spend the time, effort to get on the phone, onboard, educate, um, because they'll eventually kind of trade through us. Got it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, okay, and then what about the kind of legacy tech players, right? So you've got the Facebooks, Googles, Twitters of the world. Um, how do you see them playing into this, right? So Facebook's got their blockchain team that they're kind of going after. I don't think Google's really uh, said too much other than they're going to ban some, you know, crypto ads. Uh, Twitter, same thing. Like, how do you see a, an audience in the crypto space who comes out of that tech industry for the most part interfacing back with those, you know, tech incumbents? My hope is that um, the solution for any of these incumbents is not to create their own token, um, and, you know, they just hop on the backs of a Bitcoin or, or Ether or Litecoin. Well, pick one of the existing ones and not kind of create um, like Facebook dollars, right, on um, the Facebook coin. Uh, but you sort of seen the way that, um, that Square has sort of integrated kind of Bitcoin into their payments platform. Um, I, I do think that the, rather than kind of you know, creating Squarecoin, um, they kind of went with, with Bitcoin as kind of the, the future of internet money in the way that Jack Dorsey is currently kind of thinking about it. And so um, I do hope that um, they figure out ways to um, reward content creators um, uh, by letting them, hey, to accept payments and whatever cryptocurrency of your choosing without kind of creating the additional friction of a Twitter coin. Um, and having to make people sort of buy whatever that token is. Because chances are that author is not holding on to the Twitter coin. They're going to turn it right around and sell it for, for fiat. Absolutely. It, it is uh, Facebook specifically, I've continued to say, one of the greatest things that could happen to crypto is if Facebook gave everyone a digital wallet and somehow drove adoption of Bitcoin. Right? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I think that just the inflection point of 2,000 or uh, 2 billion plus people getting to... Uh, interface with this digital currency, you know, would be like nothing we've ever seen. I 100% I agree. And I think that if you rewarded users by, who click on banners by giving you a little bit of Bitcoin in your Facebook wallet, um, just give it even without having to buy anything, right? I think just owning some gives you that incentive and kind of the interest to follow it more. Um, and I do think there's a lot of creative ways to, I think, get more adoption, um, certainly at the consumer mass level, um, simply by rewarding folks back in, the, in, in crypto. 
Yeah, it's awesome. Um, all right, so I got one more question for you, and then I let every guest ask me a question. So, uh, so, so think of a good one there. Um, what is the one thing in crypto that you believe that you think a, ma- a majority of the people you know would disagree with you on? That is a good question. Um, I'll have to think about this one for a few seconds while I also simultaneously come up with a question for you. <laughs> um, the big intelligence test on, uh, on this podcast. <laughs> Um, I think um, that the U.S. Um, will um, get their head around ICOs and that they, um, I will say, that within 10 years, um, the U.S. will not be the kind of the, the ostracized ICO market that it exists today. I do believe that regulators, um, while they certainly are scared first and foremost, um, will get their head around the fact that if they don't adopt, all of that capital formation and capital funding moves offshore. And I don't think that's in the best interest of the United States to kind of let that happen. I do think that the uh, U.S. Continue, needs to continue to be a hotbed for, for startups and kind of funding. And I do think that they'll get their head around ICOs and that U.S. will be a hotbed for ICOs within 10 years. Yeah, I mean, look, I I completely agree with you, right? I actually think that ICOs are just a different name for an IPO, right? It's a a funding mechanism or a capital formation event. And the only reason why it is different is because the current laws force it to be, Mm -hmm. right? But if we change the laws, then they would look very similar, right? You could see a world where they say, hey, look, you've got to report X information. You've got to have these disclosures. You can only raise capital from, you know, one group of people versus another. I mean, it, it really is kind of the, taking the wild west and just putting a box around it and saying, you know, here's the right way to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, now, very, very cool. Uh, all right. What, uh, what question you, do you have for me? All right. Um, in the last 30 seconds, I've come up with one. Um, is so ether is two hundred and seventy five dollars today. Um, uh, is ether more likely to be a thousand dollars? Or $10. (laughs) So everyone who's ever come on here always asks me, like, random questions about Twitter, et cetera. And you asking me about price is amazing. Um, So I'm one of these uh, folks who, when it comes to Ether, uh, I do not think that it's very analogous to Bitcoin, right, in terms of the deflationary schedule versus inflationary and and kind of the way that it's used as a utility. Um, I probably don't have the confidence to say that it's going to $10, right? But I do think that the mechanism in which it is used, especially that decoupling that you talked about of prices, uh, it is much more likely to stay depressed according to where Bitcoin goes, right? And and, and the thought process there is uh, you are incentivized to use what you are holding if you want to use the network. Right. And so, um, you know, kind of the, the macroeconomics of that forces a lot more downward pressure than, say, Bitcoin, where because of the deflation and, and uh, ultimately the detraction of the, mon- of the monetary supply, uh, people are incentivized to hold. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it, it is, um, you know, the, the decoupling piece is really interesting to me because uh, at the core, they're two separate uh, systems in terms of how the assets uh are uh, both created, held, and, and ultimately incentivized to, to use or not use. Um, and, and so I think that you know it, it's much more likely to go lower than it is to go higher, right, over a long period of time. Great. 
Awesome, man. Um, I really appreciate the time. This is uh, this is fascinating. I think that uh, a lot of people are going to get a lot out of uh, the OTC trading and kind of what you guys do. Um, so I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our sponsor, Block Estate. To check out their tokenized real estate fund, you can check out www.blockestate.com. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.